painting to photography, from beadwork to woodworking. KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University presents Artbeat. Artbeat highlights the work and accomplishments of local artists from in and around Winona. Support for Artbeat is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This episode of Artbeat, we go back to St. Mary's University for a part three of Sandbar Storytelling. Sandbar Storytelling is a festival which utilizes one of the most beautiful works of art, storytelling. Today, we're showcasing award-winning storyteller, recording artist, and author, Bill Lepp. Bill Lepp is a kid-friendly storyteller who wrote and recorded 28 books and audio collections and the recipient of West Virginia's Vandalia Award, as well as the Parents' Choice Gold Award and a few others. So get ready as we give you the backstage look into Bill Lepp today on Art Week. I just want you to notice that I'm modeling. <laughs> yes. Sandbar Storytelling Festival <laughs> So, I don't know if you remember 1986 like I do. I don't know if you remember it at all. <laughs> but it was an interesting time. I was 16 years old. My friends were 16 years old. And we were just past, well, I guess we were in the Reagan era. Uh, Reagan had just told Gorbachev to tear down the wall earlier that summer. The United States had bombed Libya. We were really just starting to come to terms with the Vietnam War. It had been over for quite a while, but, you know, we were just getting around to it. And uh, we had one paragraph in our history book about the Vietnam War. That's how much we knew about it. And so we thought maybe we were going to war with Russia or Iran or whoever. So it was an interesting time to be 16 years old. And maybe to make matters worse, because we were 16, and this is how you really think when you're 16, the year before, some 16-year-olds, not us, because we were only 15 then, at Halloween had perpetrated some pranks that had made some people angry in our town. And so the town council had decided that no one over 15 years old could go trick-or-treating that year. <laughs> so we were mad, because trick-or-treating is... It's one of those weird things, it's one of those holidays I think that we hold on to as long as we can because as you get older, Christmas changes how you view Christmas, right? When you go from a child to a teenager to adult, Christmas changes. But Halloween always holds that same mystique and so we continue to go to costume parties late into our life and we wanted at least one more chance to go trick-or-treating but they had outlawed. And we were bummed about that, but our friend Fern Dale, Fern was so smart, and Fern got us all together, and she said, here's what we're going to do. So on the night of trick-or-treating, we got together, and we put on what Fern had instructed us to wear. And basically, what we were wearing was, uh, you know, sort of Dickens-esque clothing with mittens and wool coats and corduroy pants, I don't know what they wore back then, and woolen hats, and we had candles in our hands. And so we went out trick-or-treating like that. And I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, well, that's good Halloween gear, wool coats and wool shirts and stocking caps because you live in Minnesota. <laughs> but we live in West Virginia. And on that particular trick-or-treating eve, it was about 85 degrees, 94% humidity, so it wasn't the best costume. And we went following Fern's directions, and we knocked on doors, and instead of saying trick-or-treat, we would sing, 
little town of Bethlehem. <laughs> or, yeah, right, we weren't trick-or-treating, we were Christmas caroling from house to house. We never asked for candy, we never accepted any candy, we just went from house to house doing that, but it got hotter and hotter, and as it got hot, you know, I went behind somebody's garage and took off everything I was wearing that I could underneath my big overcoat, and eventually everyone else had to well, in a small town, word gets out pretty quick when a bunch of people are breaking the law. <laughs> and we heard the whoop whoop of Sheriff Hasbro's car behind us. Sheriff Hasbro was a wonderful man. He, um, he was a really good lawman. I mean, you know, if you needed a beaten, by golly, he'd give you one. But <laughs> he hated stupid laws, and he hated the officious people who made him enforce stupid laws. So we heard whoop whoop, and he got out of the car, and he, we kind of gathered around him, and he said, uh, I heard y'all been trick-or-treating. And Ferndale said, with all due respect, sir, we haven't been. And he said, well, what have you been doing? And Fern said, well, we're Christmas caroling. <laughs> Sheriff Hasbro said, it's a little bit early for that, isn't it? <clears throat> and Ferndale said, well, Christmas just keeps coming earlier and earlier. <laughs> Sheriff Hasbro said, that it do. And by this time, other people had gathered around us. And one of the people that had gathered around us was Toad Gilkey's mom. Toad was one of the kids with us. Toad is a kid I went to high school with. Toad is his given name. Um, <laughs> When he was born, I guess, his parents were just like, gonna have to call this one Toad. And so, Toad's mom was one of the people who had, who had caused the city council to quit uh, making us have, uh, letting us trick-or-treat. So she was very upset that Toad was there. And she said, Toad, you take off that costume right now. And we all sort of looked at each other. And Fern gave the nod, and we started to unbutton and did, and it turned out you know it quickly became obvious that we were less underneath our costumes we were less dickens-esque and more burlesque and so, <laughs> there were some screams and small children had their eyes covered so fern went later to the city council and got 16 year olds reinstated as being allowed to to trick-or-treat and to celebrate that at Christmas, we dressed up like ghosts and ghouls and went trick-or-treating. <laughs> so first start off, starting off with an icebreaker, I'll just quit catch your name. Bill Lepp, B-I-L with one L, L-E-P-P. Oh yeah, I did notice that it was the one, that was just one L in the, in the bill. So, um, how long have you been a professional storyteller? It's been my full-time job since 2003, so 20 years. Uh, I've been making money at it here and there for since 1990, I think, was the first time I won $100 in the storytelling contest. Mm. Uh, and what got you started in the storytelling business? Well, I grew up in a family where everybody told stories all the time. And mm. it was always up to the listener to decide what was true. You could say anything you want in a conversation just to make it more entertaining. And everybody knew that's what it wasn't malicious. Everybody knew that's what was happening. So I was always around story my entire life. Everybody in my family told stories. And then I always wanted to be a writer, and that wasn't really working out. It was hard to find anybody to pay me. It was hard to get anybody to read anything I'd written. So we have this contest in West Virginia every year called the West Virginia Liars Contest. And my brother Paul, who was 10 years older than me, he's since uh, passed on, but he started doing the contest when I was 16, I guess. 
and I watched him do it for several years, and he won, and it looked like fun. So in 1990, I entered for the first time. And I didn't know that you could be a professional storyteller at that point. And I did it, just a couple of little things a year for about eight years. And then in 1998, a storyteller named Ed Stivender was at a festival that I was at, and he was the first full-time professional storyteller I'd ever met, the first time I found out you could be a professional storyteller. And so that's when I really started to pursue it. And fortunately, Ed really liked my stuff. So he gave my name to the National Storytelling Festival down in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and they featured me in a 15-minute spot in 2000, and that went really well. And in 2002, they invited me back to be a featured teller, and it's been my job ever since. Awesome. Um, what's been your, one of your most favorite moments within your, within your history of being a storyteller? You know what, I just came off stage just now, and that was one of my favorite moments. I didn't, that story that I just told, I wrote, I don't know, four or five years ago, but because of COVID, I haven't really told it very often, so I don't really know it that well. And it's fun for me to go out on stage, and basically, I know the framework of the story, but I don't know every single line or how they work, and so it's fun to kind of, kind of go out it's not quite unprepared, but less prepared than I could be, and tell the story and feel myself remember it, and at the same time feel the audience responding positively. So one of the benefits to being a storyteller as opposed to other artists like a painter or a writer is those kind of artists don't always get to watch an audience appreciate their work. But as a storyteller, I get to go out on stage, stand in front of my audience, say my material and I can see and feel them have an emotional reaction to it. And I, I think that's my favorite part is just watching the audience react the way I want them to, to what I've written. <laughs> but one time Fern asked me if I wanted to go over to Beckley to get a hamburger. Now Beckley was a long way to go to get a hamburger, but I was 16 and Fern was pretty <laughs> and a girl <laughs> and she was talking to me. So <laughs> I said, yes. And as we were going over, I noticed there were some walkie-talkies in the back of her car. And I reached back and I grabbed one and I said, what are these for? And she said, I've got a plan. Now Fern, like Skeeter, often had a plan. But the difference between Skeeter's plans and Fern's plans is Fern's plans usually had some sort of exit strategy. <laughs> Skeeter's never did. I said, what are these for? She said, I have a plan. Now what you have to understand is that we had a guy in our high school, well he was a teacher, and he had been the sound man for the Grateful Dead for decades. He was from our little town, and when he retired from that, he came home, and he quickly got bored being retired, and so he donated a whole bunch of money to the school to build a giant uh, audio-visual department where we could learn everything we needed to know about sound and vision and, and cameras and, you know, still cameras, action cameras, movie cameras, whatever, recording, wiring, all of that stuff. And, and that donation credentialed him to be a teacher. And so <laughs> he was in charge of the AV section and he was a wonderful teacher. He had that rare knack. I don't know if you ever were lucky enough to have a teacher like this, but he had that rare knack where he only ever taught you things that you wanted to know. <laughs> it was tricky. And Vern wanted to know everything and so she had learned everything about all kinds of electronics. And she said, well, I took those walkie-talkies and I rewired them so you don't have to press the button to send, 
and release the button to receive. She said you can just press the button and you can send and receive at the same time. She said it's like a telephone. And I was like, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> she could just carry a telephone wherever you went. <laughs> and we pulled into the parking lot of the Burger King, finally, in Beckley, and we pulled in beside. Skeeter's truck was already there, I didn't know. Uh, but we pulled in beside, so Fern was here, and Skeeter's girlfriend, Charlay. Charlay Fester was the daughter of Angus Fester. Angus Fester was a mean old dairy farmer in our community who had named all of his children. He loved cattle. And so he named all of his children after different breeds of cattle. <laughs> so there was, there was Angus Jr., and there was Holstein, uh, Hereford, Beefalo, Guernsey, and Jersey. And Guernsey and Beefalo, they were the twins. Um, doesn't make any sense because you think Guernsey and Jersey would be the twins. Well, geography joke. And then when Helen, Mrs. Fester, finally had a daughter, she knew that Angus was going to name the poor girl after a cow, so she said, at least make it sound feminine. And that's where Charlay got her name. And Skeeter and Charlay had fallen in love in like the second grade. It was awful. But anyway, uh, she was there. And so Fern said, howdy, Charlay. And Charlay said, howdy, Fern. And Fern handed one of the walkie-talkies to Charlay. Apparently, they talked this plan uh, you know, through before. And Charlay said to Skeeter, you go get in the drive-thru at the Burger King, but time it so that we pull up to the drive-thru at the Wendy's at the same time. So we managed that little maneuver, and Skeeter held the walkie-talkie out to the Burger King drive-thru uh, microphone, and Fern held the walkie-talkie out to the Wendy's microphone. And you remember in the old days that those communication systems in a drive-thru weren't as audible as they are today. And so the guy at Burger King said, would you like to try a Whopper? And the lady at Wendy's said, basically, we don't have Whoppers. <laughs> and the guy at Burger King said, so one Whopper. And the lady at Wendy's said, we don't have Whoppers. Would you like to try Dave's Double? And the guy at Burger King said, Dave's not here. <laughs> and the lady at Wendy's said, okay, one root beer, but you don't have to scream. <laughs> King said, okay, one ice cream? And Lady Wendy said, we don't have ice cream, we just have Frosties. And the guy at Burger King said, if you want a Frosty, you gotta go to Wendy's. And Lady Wendy said, this is Wendy's. And the guy at Burger King said, well, Wendy Dave's not here. And then we went to McDonald's. So... How do you feel when you have an audience who's not reacting? You know, I know you, you like the audience when they're engaged. And that. Yeah, that's tough. And I, I think a lot of storytellers would tell you that when you go out and it doesn't go well, you know, you come off stage and your initial reaction is to be like, man, there's something wrong with that audience, you know. But I've been doing this long enough to know that a lot of times if it's going badly, it's probably my fault. So when it when it starts to go south or when it never gets going at all, I mean I'm on stage questioning myself like what am what am I doing wrong? Did I somehow am I speaking Danish and I don't know it? You know, um, so a lot of it you know is self examination to figure out what I might have been doing wrong. 
But there are times when you just don't click with the audience. And I, again, I've been doing this a long time and I feel confident in my material. I never want to do a bad show. I never want an audience to walk away thinking, man, that wasn't worth my time. But I also know that occasionally it's just not going to work. Uh, and so I don't let it get me too down. I do a lot of junior high and high schools. And, you know, junior high is the toughest audience in the world. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't base my ego on what a bunch of 13, 14-year-old kids think about me, you know. <laughs> on the other hand, when it goes really well in a junior high school, I really feel like I've accomplished something good. Right. Um, as you could say, maybe bad if not, but fighting through the adversity of some of those shows where the audience isn't too engaging, you think that might build you as a storyteller? Or Absolutely, know, yeah. I think it was Dean Martin, the old-time comedian, who said, you don't learn to be funny by being funny on stage, you learn to be funny by not being funny on stage. So when you find out what doesn't work, and the, the main way to find out what doesn't work is to go out on stage some, and it bombs, you know, and you're like, man, how do I? And then if you want to grow, you got to not blame anybody and just go back and figure out what was wrong with that joke? Did I say something wrong? What words did I use? What could I do better? So every time it goes bad, not every time, sometimes you're just mad. Uh, but most times when it goes bad on stage, I use that as an opportunity to figure out what I could do better. Yeah, you did an excellent job dealing with the audience tonight and keeping the mm -hmm. show engaged. Thank like, you. What would you say to um, somebody who's an up-and-coming storyteller or someone who wants to get started in the gig? Um, I think the most important thing is to know your story and know why you're telling it. And when I say know your story, I don't necessarily mean memorize it because I don't memorize my stories. I know pretty much what I want to say. I, I write them all out. Um, so I, I know them, but I don't, they're not memorized in such a way that if I mess up one line, it wrecks the whole story. I allow myself to recover. So that'd be another thing I say is learn to use your mistakes on stage instead of getting flustered by them. But if you know your story, if you have confidence when you walk out on stage and you know your story and you know what it means to you or why you're telling it, the audience feels that confidence that you have. And so they believe in you. Whereas if you go out there and you're all nervous and flustered, a lot of times the audience is either worried about you or they're put off by that. And so you have to win them over. Yeah. So, of course, somebody that hears, if I go out on stage nervous, it's going to make the audience not like me. It's going to make that person more nervous, and I apologize for that. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with nervousness, but you have to be confident in your story when you get out there. Mm. So like when, you, like when you said that you, were, that you just write it down, you, mo you mostly just make sure that you, have to hit, that you hit certain bullet points in the story and the rest you kind of just go by the seat of your pants. Um, no, I write my stories down word for word. It takes a lot of times, it takes six months to write a story. That book report story that I just told, it took a solid six months to write. Right. And I'm writing it over and over and over again. And as I'm writing it over and over and over again, it just starts to get embedded. I mean, I physically write them with a pencil and paper a lot of times and then type them. So that whole action makes it stick in my head. But then when I get up on stage, I'm not thinking the first line of this story is Ferndale asked me to go get a burger because that thing I told at the beginning was a different story. I'm not thinking that I have to get from Fern asked me to go get a burger all the way to Dr. Hoonfoos in the cafeteria wondering if he's really hurt in an accident. Because that's too much. That's 40 minutes, you know. That's too much to think about. So, yeah, I think about 
get through the scene at the Burger King and the Wendy's. And then, and then you can get through the next scene. So I do, I, have, I call them mile markers, not bullet points. But if I can get to mile marker one, then I can get to mile marker two. And so I'm just taking each story segment by segment. And I don't know if you could tell up there, but there were times when I slowed down or I paused for maybe 10 seconds. And that's where I was like, holy crap, I don't know where I'm going next. Uh, And so I just say something off the cuff to give me time to remember where I was going. But I like it to feel like it's a conversation. I like to feel like I'm in a conversation with the audience. And so if I'm just saying words that I've memorized, it doesn't give me a lot of time to interact with the audience. And it feels like I'm talking at you instead of talking with you. When we got to school in the morning, we would go, probably like you did, we would go to homeroom. And the first thing that happened was the announcements would come on. Now, we had a principal named Dr. Hundfuss. That's not his real name. I made that up. It's German, in my mind, for dog foot. Because I think that really encapsulates this man's personality. And um, he, you know, he really missed his chance. He could have been a petty despot or or the warden of a corrupt prison system. But instead he had gone into school administration. He would get on the loudspeaker every morning and he would start the announcements. He would always start the same way. He would say, this is Dr. Hoonfoos, principal of Half Dollar High School, in case we'd forgotten who he was. And then he would just, he would always read the announcements. He would never say the announcements because he wasn't the sort of person who had creative thoughts. So he just had to read whatever was in front of him. And then he would, and, 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 and when he did have a creative thought, it all went wrong. One time I remember, just in the middle of the school day, the loudspeaker went off and he said, this is Dr. Hoon Fu's principal at Half Dollar High School. There's been a terrible accident out on Route 1. Nobody look out the window. <laughs> and the entire school just shifted. <laughs> We were sitting in the lunchroom one day, and Skeeter said, I don't think Dr. Hoonfoos ever pre-reads the announcements. I think he just picks up a piece of paper and reads what's there. I mean, you can go ahead and guess. But I'm going to tell the whole story anyway. And Fern said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I think whatever's on that piece of paper, he would read. And she said, Lordy, what are you thinking? And he said, I think we could slip anything in there. And he would read it. And she said, all right, type something up. I work in the office. That's what she did for her service hours. She worked in the office. And not Toad. Toad, uh, for his service hours, he worked at the county um, maintenance shed uh, doing various work. But his community hours weren't, you know, like to go on his college application. They were court ordered. Um, Well, what was interesting is the judge was also his scoutmaster, so he let it be his eagle project as well. (laughs) (laughs) So Fern said, just just don't make it dirty, just I'll put it in. And so the next day, in homeroom, we heard this Dr. Hoonfoos, principal of Half Dollar High School, later today, pool at 4.30 at the city pool, there will be water polo tryouts. Life jackets will be provided, but you need to bring your own horse. (laughs) 
So it was working, and um, <laughs> like I said, Dr. Hoonfoos was essentially a petty despot, and so nobody loves a petty despot. All the teachers, most of the teachers, all but one teacher hated Dr. Hoonfoos as well, and so nobody bothered to tell him <laughs> that maybe this wasn't true. And he had this remarkable ability. Now, this is going to sound like someone who has been in the news for the last six or seven years, um, <laughs> but this is a real person, Dr. Hoonfoos, who I knew in 1986, 87, 88. So this, I'm not making this up to reflect someone else. I am just saying this, and if you want to compare, that is up to you. But Dr. Hoonfoos had the remarkable ability of believing anything that came out of his mouth and went into his ears. <laughs> if he heard himself say it, he knew it was true because he would never say anything that wasn't true. In his mind, he was incapable of that. And so he believed that we were having water polo tryouts at the pool with our horses. <laughs> and all of the other teachers let him believe that, except Mrs. Doberman. Um, Mrs. That's not her real name either. <laughs> she had a crush on Dr. Hoonfoos, this weird power fetish kind of thing, I guess. And so she was trying to convince Dr. Hoonfoos that maybe the water polo tryouts weren't true. And Skeeter had overheard this conversation, so we were talking about that at lunch, and, 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 and I said, you know, what are we gonna do about that? And Skeeter said, well, I have an idea. Just follow me down to the office. <laughs> so we went to the office, there was a pay phone. When you walked in the front door of the school, uh, if you turned right, there was the doorway that went into the office, and then there was the big, like, five-by-five five window with the mesh inside so that if the window broke, it wouldn't shatter and kill people. The same kind of window that's at a zoo, because people who work in high schools know that they work in a zoo. And so I think my favorite feature in my high school were the bathrooms, um, because the sign, the signs outside the bathroom, the, the boys' bathroom is said boys, and the girls' bathroom said women, and I thought, that's right. And so, <laughs> so there was a payphone just to this side of that window, and Skeet went to that payphone, he kept to the side so you couldn't see him through the window, and he dialed the school, and Jane, the receptionist, answered, and, and Skeeter said, Jane, this is Tommy down at the pool, can I talk to Dr. Hoonfoos? <laughs> and so Jane put Dr. Hoonfoos on the phone, and Skeet said, uh, Dr. Hoonfoos, uh, well, first, Dr. Hoonfoos said this, Dr. Hoonfoos, principal of Half Dollar High School. <laughs> and Skeeter said, Dr. Hoonfoos, this is Tommy. I have a message that you called. And Dr. Hoonfoos said, I, I did? And Tommy said, well, I have a message that you did, so you must have. He said, does the note say what I called about? <laughs> And Skeet said, yeah, it says you called about the water polo tryouts. So Dr. Hunfu said, well, then I must have called about the water polo tryouts. What, what can you tell me? And Tommy said, well, I have some disappointing news. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do the water polo tryouts. The hydrator at the pool is malfunctioning, and I can't get the water wet enough <laughs> to be buoyant enough for the horses to float. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Hoonfoos said, well, 
that's going to be a big disappointment. I know a lot of the kids are looking forward to the water polo. <laughs> and by this time, I mean, Fern and I were over here, and we were starting to chuckle, and Skeet was clearly about to lose it. And so Fern just kind of motioned, kind of, you know, mouth to him, get off the phone, I'll take care of the rest of this. And so Skeet said, oh, no, i got to go. And Dr. Hoonfu said, what's the problem? And Skeeter said, there, there's the fire. And Dr. Hoonfu said, what? And Skeeter said, the pool's on fire. <laughs> said, how can the pool be on fire? And Skeeter said, I told you the hydrator's not working. <laughs> and Fern walked into the office. Now, Fern, Fern was one of those people, maybe you know her, they're usually, they're usually female. Um, she was just so competent, so smart, and so self-assured that no one ever thought she was up to anything. And so she could get away with anything. That's beautiful. So she walked right into the office. She worked in there, people knew her. Went around the desk, went to the typewriter, fed a piece of paper into it, typed something out, pulled the paper out, handed it to Dr. Hoonfoos and said, Tommy at the pool called, asked me to type this up for you to read. Dr. Hoonfu still had the phone in his hand. And he said, how did Tommy call? Pools on fire. And she said, pools are made out of water. They can't burn. Read this announcement. And so Dr. Hoonfu went straight to the, to the PA, and he picked up the microphone, and he read, this is Dr. Hoonfu, principal of Happy High School. I asked the disappointing news. Water polo tryouts have been postponed till tomorrow. If you brought your horse to school, <laughs> you can leave it in your locker overnight. <laughs> and we all walked away giggling, and this went on. You know, we didn't do it every day, but every week or so we'd print out some sort of spurious, spurious announcement. But we had to be real careful because other kids in the school were getting wise to what was going on and they were trying to slip their own messages in. So we spent a lot of time making sure no one else was getting a message in there. And what was fun was we would, we would type up certain messages that we wanted to be in a specific class to have the teacher here so we could hear the reaction of that, especially our drama teacher, because, you know, he'd be like, gosh, who writes this stuff? <laughs> and sometimes we hear somebody say, I wish you would make an announcement about this, and then, you know, sure enough, a few days later, now about... A huge thanks to Bill Lepp for joining us, as well as the host of Sandbar Storytelling for making today's episode possible. Tune in next week for a part four continuation on Bill Lepp's performance. To keep up with the festival, visit sandbarstorytellingfestival.org. For more information on Bill Lepp, visit leppstorytelling.com. That's L-E-P-P storytelling.com. Or a show, Man vs. History, on the History Channel. For more info on all things Winona, tune in to Artbeat Tuesdays at 1230 here on 89.5 KQAL. Online at kqal.org and the KQAL app. Artbeat is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Visit us on the web at kqal.org.